The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is Wednesday, May 17th, 2023. Uh, on behalf of the team here at the Army Heritage and Education Center and the Army War College, we'd like to welcome you to tonight's lecture. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to thank our foundation and all that they do for us. Uh, tonight, they'll be selling the uh, speaker's books out here at the uh, entranceway to the auditorium. So when you come on out, uh, please make sure you grab yourself a copy. Uh, all proceeds support the work that the foundation does to support us. So thank you very much. Uh, we welcome listeners from all over the world through our live stream. For those of you listening online, remember that you can uh, enter into the chat any Q&As that you have or during the session here when it's over. Uh, my name is Greg Statler. I'm the uh, Collections Director here at the AHEC, and tonight I have the honor of uh, presenting the USAHEC team and introducing our speaker. Uh, Dr. Thomas uh, Guglielmo is the Department Chair and Associate Professor of American Studies at George Washington University. Uh, he has long experience researching and teaching on the subject of race and ethnic studies, immigration, and the social, cultural, and political history of the United States in the 20th century. So, without further ado, sir, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Greg, for the introduction. Um, let me just turn this on. Um, and thanks so much to AAC for inviting me here tonight. I'm really um, uh, excited to be here and to share some of your some of my work with you all. Um, I also want to thank uh, Doug Cubison, Carl Warner, Zach Mateja, and Hannah Hankey for working behind the scenes to make this talk possible, dealing with all the vital logistical issues. Um, and of course, I want to thank again you all for coming out tonight. Um, in my experience, post-pandemic, it's very hard to convince people to come in person. So this is a, a nice crowd. And again, I'm really appreciative for you all being here. Um, so I am very excited to talk about this book that uh, it took me a long time to research and write. Um, it's called Divisions. That's the cover, A New History of Racism and Resistance in America's World War II Military. Um, it's a big, complex book. Um, I'm going to do my best to kind of give you a sense of the main arguments of the book here tonight. Um, to make it somewhat manageable, I've broken it up into three parts. So the first part is called divisions, the second part is called descent, and the third part is called aftermaths. So part one, divisions. America's World War II military was a force of unalloyed good, and not simply because it helped save the world from Nazism and totalitarianism. It also managed to unify a famously fractious American people. At least that's the good war story many Americans have long told themselves from the early days of war mobilization right up until the present day. So here's President Roosevelt speaking in 1940 upon signing the draft, the Selective Training and Service Act. So fall of 1940, President Roosevelt signs this monumentally important law. And here's his prediction about how 
the draft and military service will affect the United States. He says, quote, in the military service, Americans from all walks of life will learn to live side by side, to depend upon each other in military drills and maneuvers, and to appreciate each other's dignity as American citizens. Universal service will bring not only greater preparedness for war, to meet the threat of war, but a wider distribution of tolerance and understanding to enjoy the blessings of peace. By war's end, Roosevelt's predictions had come true. That is, if we can believe popular culture. So Hollywood combat films and popular books from the war years showcased countless diverse platoons, many, as one scholar put it, quote, quite consciously composed of one Negro, one Jew, a Southern boy, and a sprinkling, genera a sprinkling of second generation Italians, Irish, Scandinavians, and Poles. And I'm sure you've seen movies with this common, uh, common theme. And this is a, a poster from the Warriors that captures this theme of unity and uniform. If you've seen Guadalcanal Diary or Bataan or Sahara, Gung Ho, Action in the North Atlantic, uh, any of these films kind of have this, uh, you know, Saving Private Ryan more recently, have this, this common theme of diverse soldiers coming together in time of war. These stories about unity and uniform live on. In his 1998 bestseller, The Greatest Generation, Tom Brokaw assured his readers that America's World War II GIs, quote, were fused by a common mission and a common ethos, end of quote, which was so uniformly profound that more than a half a century later, they still all, quote, love each other, end of quote. Completed six years later, the World War II Memorial on the National Mall, according to its website, quote, stands as an important symbol of American national unity, a timeless reminder of the moral strength and awesome power that can flow when a free people are at once united and bonded together in a common and just cause. So again, the same theme of unity in uniform. My talk tonight and the book it's based on tell a decidedly different story. They stress not national unities, but racist divisions as a fundamental feature of America's World War II military and of the post-war world it helped to fashion. Who served? Who fought? Who died? Who gave orders and who was forced to follow them? Who received the best ratings and jobs and pay and promotions? Who was court-martialed? Who received furloughs and leaves? Who received honorable or dishonorable discharges? Who ate at the officer's club? Who danced at the Post's main recreation center? Who drank at the best pub in Cherbourg, France, or swam in the nicest pool in Calcutta, India? Shaping every imaginable aspect of military life color lines often spoke definitively in all of these matters and more. Now, what exactly did these color lines or these divisions have to say? Well, the simplest and most fundamental answer is white supremacy, as disturbing as that sounds. The US military was a sprawling structure of white domination. 
Um, and at the risk of sounding polemical, let me just be very careful about how I'm defining that. The US military during World War II offered a grossly disproportionate share of power and prestige to those people who could claim status as white. So in comparison to all other people, whites had a much easier time joining the military or a particular branch of the military. Um, they had a much easier time breaking into the officer ranks. They had a much easier time rising within those ranks, a much easier time occupying all of the highest positions of authority. They had a much easier time receiving skilled, well-paid work and promotions. They had a much easier time enjoying adequate recreational facilities, an easier time fighting in combat and receiving the honor that came along with it. They had a much easier time getting a fair shake in the military's criminal justice system. They had a much easier time earning awards and decorations, a much easier time being discharged honorably on time and with full access to GI Bill benefits. I could go on, but the bottom line is this. White people enjoyed countless unearned advantages in America's World War II armed forces. But who were these white people exactly? And in relation to whom did they enjoy these advantages? And this is where the answer is actually more complicated than I expected. Since the military had multiple crisscrossing color lines, not just a single color line. These lines defined whites and everybody else in various and sometimes contradictory ways. So let me focus, just to give you a little bit of specifics here, uh, I'm going to focus on two of the most important color lines that the military um, uh, built during the war years or, or kind of uh, maintained during the war years. And this might get a little bit abstract for a second, but just bear with me. It's important for kind of understanding the details of how this all worked. So the first and by far the most uh, pervasive and institutionalized and devastating racist division in the military was what one African-American soldier training in Mississippi in 1942 called, quote, damn fool lines that say black boys on this side and whites on the other. So within this black-white color line, black people included anyone with any discernible trace of African ancestry. But this all-important white category was a moving target. At its most inclusive, whiteness corralled everybody who was not African-American, um, creating what some scholars today call a black, non-black line, right? So this was a line that was called black and white, but really you had folks of African descent here and everybody else over here. Um, in this case, um, the power of anti-black racism sometimes transformed Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Filipino Americans, Mexican Americans, Native Americans, Puerto Ricans, and others into white insiders of a sort. So for example, one 1940 War Department memo regarding who would join white military outfits had this to say. Trainees of all, there's a quote, trainees of all races other than Negro will be assigned the same as white trainees, right? So when it came time to segregating units, you had, according to this War Department memo from 1940, you had African Americans here and you had everybody else mixed in these white units over here. But take note of the language. Some 
the same as white trainees, not white trainees, but the same as white trainees. That language, some of those, quote, races other than Negro, quote, end of quote, were not exactly white, but would be assigned to units as if they were. Here then is a sign that the military established other color lines besides the all important black white color line. The most important of these were various versions of a white non-white line. This color line was less widespread than the black white color line, but at times it nonetheless narrowed the category of white to include at its most exclusive only those of supposed pure European descent. This meant that groups like Asian Americans, Latino Americans, and Native Americans zigged and zagged throughout the war years. They zigged and zagged between whiteness, non-whiteness, and a nominal whiteness, between insider, outsider, and a murky middle ground. Now, of these non-black minority groups, no one's status shifted as frequently and as dramatically um, as that of Japanese Americans. Why? Because of their supposed unbreakable ties to America's arch enemy in the Pacific. In fact, racist assumptions about those ties sometimes led to exclusions of Japanese Americans alone. So for example, the Navy from the beginning of the war throughout the entire war, the Navy flatly refused to admit any Japanese Americans into its ranks. Right, so this is, and they did this only with Japanese Americans. So this is a kind of a, an example of a, of a boundary that put Japanese Americans here, everybody else over here. So the military's various color lines, and I've given you the, again the most two most common examples of these lines: the black-white line and the white-non-white line. The military's various color lines, as ubiquitous as they were sometimes shifted over the course of the war, especially in combat. Because most Asian Americans, Native Americans, and Latino Americans were permitted to fight alongside white troops, they sometimes forged comradely bonds with each other, right? And, and so blurred these racial boundaries. Many years after the war, one American Indian veteran recalled that, quote, his first feelings of complete acceptance came while serving in the army during World War II, end of quote. Even some African-American troops occasionally expressed similar feelings, especially abroad, where they often hailed the friendliness of foreigners and reported that, quote, there are no color lines in foxholes, end of quote. But to be clear, these feelings, especially among African-Americans, were exceptionally rare. Why? In large part because the military committed very few African-Americans to combat and even fewer to the integrated kind of combat. So who built these color lines? Who was responsible? It was a group effort. Some ordinary white people, both in and out of uniform, proved enthusiastic builders. But more powerful architects had the most say in the matter, especially on the ground commanders and war and Navy department leaders. With a few important exceptions, the White House, Congress, and the courts, including the US Supreme Court, supported these leaders implicitly or explicitly all along the way. 
So there's one really important seeming exception to this rule. In 1940, that Selective Training and Service Act law that I mentioned that Roosevelt signed in the fall of 1940, it contained a straightforward and sweeping civil rights clause in it. Quote, in the selection and training of men under this act and in the interpretation and execution of the provisions of this act, there shall be no discrimination against any person on the count of race, on account of race or color, end of quote. But the military refused to follow the letter of this law, and the White House and the courts never forced it to do so. And so there was this kind of monumental civil rights clause in the draft act, but it was basically ignored. Why build these color lines? This is actually a really, really important question. Why? You might think that in total war, the US military had more important things to do than to divide its, its citizens. There was one primary paradoxical reason for these color lines, and that was that in the minds of American leaders, winning the war for four freedoms required unfreedoms. Winning the war for four freedoms, this was in the mind of American leaders, winning the war for four freedoms required unfreedoms. That is, military brass claimed repeatedly, for example, that the morale, efficiency, and discipline of US troops demanded Jim Crow, demanded it. The implication, um, the implication was that without segregation, whites would be too consumed by their hatred for black people to invest their all in the war effort. And this was, again, this is a kind of an argument that you see um, that military leaders make over and over again in their defense of not just segregation of troops, but all kinds of other um, racial discrimination. Um, now, this argument that white folks would simply not go for any kind of integration or any semblance of equality when it came to um, racial matters, this argument was a damning admission about the depths of the nation's anti-black racism. And of course, it painted a picture of the wartime military that contrasted sharply with popular notions of unity. But truthfully, military Jim Crow um, um, had most to do with its leaders, with military leaders' own deep investments in white domination and black subordination. Both of these things, these leaders seemed to believe in their bones, were natural, essential, and virtuous features of American life. Now, it's true that towards war's end, some leaders broke from this consensus, this white supremacist consensus, experimenting with integrated fighting units, training camps, and base facilities. So there was change, some change over time. But most leaders did not change over time, at least during the war. Most leaders clung to a military steeped in anti-black racism through victory and beyond. Now, the white non-white color line, so I, that's kind of how do you get black-white color lines. Let me just talk about the white, non-white color lines that I mentioned earlier. They had their own particular justifications. At times, military leaders also viewed them as essential to the war effort, none more so than when Japanese Americans and issues of national security were involved. 
Um, and as with Japanese-American internment, the idea so prevalent during the war was that Japanese-Americans could never be trusted, and so military policy had to reflect this basic fact. At other times, however, these leaders also viewed racism targeting, say, Japanese-Americans um, um, or Chinese Americans or Filipinos or Mexican Americans, sometimes they viewed this racism as a, as a war effort liability, as something that hurt the war effort and therefore ought to be addressed. Um, why leaders felt that this racism damaged America's ties to say China and Mexico and the Philippines and India are quote unquote darker allies. They also saw this racism as confirming some of the worst propaganda from the Axis, saying that America wasn't fighting a war for the four freedoms. It was instead fighting a race war for white supremacy. So in these kinds of ways, some military leaders said, you know what, maybe we should actually um, dial back some of this racism directed, not so much at African Americans, but Asian Americans and Native Americans and Latino Americans. Now, black activists and their allies made some of these same points about Jim Crow in uniform, but to little avail. Nearly all of America's military brass viewed bright black-white lines as an undisputed wartime imperative. By contrast, the value of white non-white lines was more contingent, varying somewhat depending on the time, the context, and the people in question. So that's part one, divisions. And the bottom line is there was rampant racism in the US military during World War II, but it was complicated, and it was targeted at different groups in different kinds of ways. Um, I'm going to just uh, conclude this section with a few images um, that kind of visually represent some of the divisions that I'm, I've been talking about, because I know it can feel kind of abstract. These photos hopefully will give you kind of a vivid sense of some of these, some of these matters. So this is a member of the military police, quote unquote, colored in Columbus, Georgia, April 1942. This is a kind of a typical segregated black army unit. This is at Fort Bragg. This is a Mexican-American company. Very unusual Me Mexican-Americans were almost always integrated into so-called white outfits. But this was a National Guard unit from El Paso that, at least for a time, was entirely, at least in terms of its enlisted personnel, entirely Mexican-American. But over time, it became integrated. This is a, a company, I of the first Filipino infantry at Camp Beale in California. So the first Phil, this was another one of these units that was um, segregated by race. Um, they, it wasn't just that they were all African-American units. There were also some other units that were defined by race. What's important to remember here is that you know, folks would say they are all black or all Filipino, but the officer corps was almost entirely white. And the senior most officers were always white. So it wasn't actually technically true that these were all black or all Filipino or all Mexican-American units. These are uh, members of the 65th Infantry from Puerto Rico. I mentioned that um, color lines could break down at certain times in certain places. And one really important place was overseas. So African-American soldiers constantly um, you know, uh, remarked on the fact that, wow, you know, we're outside the United States and we're actually finally being treated like full-fledged human beings. And this is something that they experienced in Europe 
in, in parts of Asia, in Australia, and so forth. And, and you can imagine, it really made an impression on many African Americans. So this is a great photograph, soldier Ellis Ross in Italy with a group of friends enjoying a meal, something that he could have never done in many parts of the United States at this very time. So this is a great photograph of Noboro Hokami and Charles Carroll, who appear to have fought together in Europe, convalescing and um, you know, sharing a hug, having um, you know, broken certain boundaries and, and created a real friendship um, that, again, might not have been so possible um, prior to combat, prior to World War II. OK, so that's part one, divisions. Let me talk now part two, descent. So these divisions or these color lines are only half the story. Um, after all, the military's purpose in building these lines was often defensive. It sought to shore them up against constant efforts to rewrite or to remove these divisions or these boundaries or these lines. Furthermore, to the extent that these boundaries shifted or blurred over the course of the war, bottom-up struggles deserve a good deal of the credit, right? So some of it had to do with um, combat and the ways in which color lines broke down in combat. Some of it had to do with the, the perceived needs of the US government fighting with, quote, darker allies, and therefore racism could be a liability. Um, so there are a lot of different pressures at work that might have led to the blurring of these boundaries. But a really important factor that I don't think has gotten enough attention is the bottom-up pressure to democratize the military, to make it stand for what our our country said it was fighting for in this war. Um, and yet we don't have a great understanding of the role of the military and especially of troops themselves in civil rights histories. Wide-ranging battles against military racism constitute, in my view, a vital chapter in the broader story of a modern America's civil rights movements. So I want to just give you a sense of what these movements looked like in the military during World War II. So first off, these battles were plural. Just as there were distinct color lines that wended their way throughout the military, distinct movements arose in response. The largest of these involved black troops and an, an impressive array of allies, including black newspapers, civil rights organizations, labor unions, religious groups, and troops, families, and loved ones. The troops themselves tended to focus their battles against the racism most common in their day-to-day -day lives, so involving rank and promotion and jobs and recreation. Um, their allies supported them in these battles, but they also took the lead on broader policy fights involving greater access to the military and also the desegregation of the military. Um, um, so these... These, these civil rights activists, both service members and civilians, worked inside the political system. So they used petitions and lobbying and voting and litigating. But they also worked outside of the system. There were boycotts and strikes and sit-ins and, and on, on certain occasions, armed self-defense. They tried their best as soldiers hoping that heroic service in uniform might finally secure for them some semblance of fairness and decency and respect. And they tried their least, convinced that no amount of sacrifice in uniform would ultimately uproot Jim Crow, 
right? And many of them had memories of World War I where they were told, promised that you will come home and you will finally receive some semblance of equal rights in the United States and they were met with race riots and the reemergence of the Ku Klux Klan and so forth. One vivid example of black soldier resistance involves a man by the name of Winfred Lynn. So Mr. Winfred Lynn, long forgotten today, was once a household name in at least some circles in World War II America. A national civil rights group bore his name, newspapers sang his praises, pamphlets and radio shows told his story, cocktail parties raised money for his cause. He was a 36-year-old black landscape gardener from Queens, New York. He refused to be drafted into the segregated US Army in 1942. And this is his letter to his draft board. And by the way, he said he was more than happy to serve. He, in fact, was eager to serve, but he was unwilling to serve in, an, in a segregated military. He would happily serve, but it would have to be an integrated military. Um, in time, actually, he was convinced to join up. So he, he did, in fact, join the Army. He rose to the rank of sergeant, serving in a medical sanitary company in the Pacific. But while he was in uniform, he continued his battle against military racism. Um, he staged sit-down strikes. He circulated protest petitions. And he served as the plaintiff in a civil rights case that reached the United States Supreme Court in 1944 a decade before Brown versus Board of Education, this, his case challenged state-sanctioned racial segregation in the Army and in the Selective Service. And he lost that fight, but his activism contributed to the post-war desegregation of the military and to the post-war black civil rights movement. Facing their own military racism involving uh, restrictions on their enlistment involving segregation and surveillance, Japanese American troops and their allies also forged their own civil rights struggles. Now, most famously, this involved highly decorated military service in the 442nd Regimental Combat Team and the 100th Infantry Battalion, right, both of which demolished the core tenant of anti-Japanese American racism during the war, which was that Japanese Americans were kind of biologically programmed to be disloyal to the United States. They were incapable of being loyal. And these two units, through their heroic service, completely demolished that idea. Um, but that wasn't the only form of kind of advocacy for Japanese Americans during the war. There were other forms. A small subset of Japanese Americans also made their compliance with induction conditional on their receiving just compensation, that is reparations, for the wrongs of mass removal and mass incarceration, what is now called, sometimes called internment. So some said, listen, I'm happy to serve, but you know, I'm, I'm living in a, in a jail right now with my family and I need to be guaranteed that something's gonna be done here before I risk my life in the US Army. Um, some Japanese Americans also fought both voluntary enlistment and compulsory conscription, so not unlike Winfred Lynn. Some demanded repatriation and expatriation and some renounced their US citizenship. So Japanese Americans, like African Americans, engaged in a whole range of responses to the unequal treatment that they faced in the US military during the war. 
Now, there were also miscellaneous struggles or moments of struggle. Perhaps the most important of these involved an assorted collection of inductees whose official, quote, racial designation was the subject of great debate between the military, selective service, and the men themselves. In many of these cases, the men who might have identified as Indian or Creole or Port Puerto Rican, in many of these cases, they fought most fervently to be not defined as African American, since it was that group, that category, that faced the most devastating forms of military racism. So it created all kinds of incentives for people to avoid that classification. But this, and this point reminds us that these struggles against military racism were as varied as the racism itself. Some people wished to keep color lines in place, right, and just to kind of make sure that they were on the so-called right side of those color lines. Um, um, some others simply wanted to relocate themselves and perhaps their fellows in relation to these color lines. Others wished to eliminate all color lines altogether and essentially said, listen, this war is supposedly against racism, it's against Nazism, it's for the four freedoms, our military should reflect that. So this is part two, dissent, right? So yes, there was uh, expansive racism in the military, but that also generated a whole level of resistance against that racism. You know, again, wishing for a military that looked more like, more in line with the, the highest I ideals of our war effort. So I want to conclude, oh, I'll just uh, show you another couple slides that again, uh, are illustrations of activism. So this is Brigadier General Benjamin O. Davis Sr. He was the sole African-American general during World War II. Um, and he was kind of behind the scenes. There was activism or an effort to create a more egalitarian military inside the military. And he was a great example of that. He was often pilloried by the African-American press and said, you know, you're not doing enough. But actually behind the scenes, he did make attempts to reform the army and to, to make it less segregated. This is a, a, an example of the kind of activism that happened on the home front uh, related to these issues. So this is a petition that I found in the National Archives in College Park, eliminate discrimination in the armed forces, and they're calling for three things in particular. They want an end to the numerical restrictions against African Americans in the Air Corps. Um, they're against the refusal of the Navy to commission African Americans. And they, they are against the continued refusal to accept the constructive proposal that a voluntary interracial unit be set up in the army. So this was actually in a really important campaign during the war. So in the effort to desegregate the military, you know, the response often was, well, whites won't go for it. And so the response of some activists was, hey, well, why don't we just create a division that um, would only include people who wish to serve in that division. And so, you know, only people who are okay with integration would be involved. Um, but that was shot down by the War Department early, early on and never really seriously considered. Um, this is a Young Communist League pamphlet from 42, again, uh, in favor of this, this voluntary integrated unit. They wanted to call it uh, the Crispus Attucks Volunteer Mixed Regiment for New York. This is the 442nd Combat Team. I mentioned this famous unit before. They're training at Camp Shelby in June of 1943. 
This is a man by the name of James Brown Bay who was in Philadelphia. I mentioned that some of these struggles involved, you know, who, how people could be racially classified and who had the authority to make these classifications. So in this case, this gentleman, James Brown Bay from Philadelphia, uh, um, insisted that he was in fact Moorish American, not African American. And the War Department contested that and ultimately he was forced to um, um, be drafted as an African American. Actually, I'm sorry, in this case, James Brown Bay refused and went to jail instead. Okay, aftermath. So I want to conclude with uh, a brief discussion of the consequences of these stories I've been telling, right? So I'm talking about divisions on the one hand and dissent against, resistance against these divisions on the other. So ultimately, what's the upshot of this kind of complex give and take story of racism and resistance? And the, 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 the answer to that question is really complicated. So I think that there were some really positive consequences that came out of this, this story about racism and resistance in the military during the war but there are a lot of negative consequences too. So I'm going to start with the positive and end with the negative. So on the positive side, countless returning veterans infused home front freedom struggles or civil rights movements with enormous energy and moral authority. The war years had profoundly changed many African-American GIs. They donned the official uniform of the US military. They traveled America and the world. They met new people. They learned new skills, thrilled to new freedoms, and protested against old injustices. And in the process, they became ever more convinced that America could and must change. Crossing the Pacific on a troop transport in late December in 1945, one African-American soldier later recalled predicting about his fellow black veterans, quote, when the moment came and it would come, these men were going to be the cutting edge of a movement that would change America, end of quote. That moment arrived sooner than he and others might have expected. All over the country, many black veterans quickly became leaders, organizers, and foot soldiers in insurging post-war civil rights struggles. They marched to courthouses across the South to register to vote. They organized NAACP chapters. They lobbied governments for fair employment and fair housing laws. Uh, they became plaintiffs in numerous very important civil rights cases. They joined or launched local efforts to desegregate schools and pools, neighborhoods, and movie theaters. They unionized their workplaces. And in the 1950s and 60s, they cultivated a whole new generation of civil rights activists. A similar sort of political awakening occurred with other troops of color as well, and for some of the same reasons. The wartime chants to represent the United States, to travel, to meet new people, to learn new skills. But in contrast to black veterans, many Asian Americans, Native Americans, and Latino Americans enjoyed greater freedoms inside the military than anything they had experienced outside of it. And that was an experience that also pol politicized them in new and profound ways. Writing of Japanese American soldiers, for example, from Hawaii, historian Franklin Odo, the late historian Franklin Odo, argued that, quote, race relations could never be the same 
after on the mainland and in Europe, they, meaning Japanese American soldiers, bought sex from white prostitutes, fed white beggars, fraternized and brawled with white GIs, married white women, and killed white enemies, end of quote. Similarly, for Native American veterans, the greater inclusion that they found in the armed forces reinforced a desire for self-determination or equal treatment or some combination of the two. Much like African Americans, other veterans of color also spearheaded civil rights movements. Native ex-GIs, for example, became active in tribal governments and through spirited activism won the right to vote in New Mexico and Arizona. Japanese American veterans leveraged their newfound status as war heroes to battle discriminatory veterans organizations, discriminatory employers, and discriminatory alien land laws and naturalization laws, and they battled to gain a modicum of redress for wartime mass confinement. Mexican-American veterans similarly returned fighting, creating new civil rights groups like the American GI Forum. Right? So one really positive development from these war years, and in particular the military experiences of many folks of color, was that they were newly politicized and emboldened to make real the war aims of the United States, to make America a true democracy. Now, the military experience convinced some white veterans to join these struggles. Um, for some, it was the act of traveling to and witnessing other less rigidly racist societies. Sometimes it was fighting alongside people of color or rehabilitating with them in adjacent hospital beds or witnessing firsthand the ways that, quote, blood and death respect no man because of color, end of quote. For others, it was the evils of Nazi racism or encounters with that other military caste regime that divided officer from enlisted personnel, which convinced them to oppose, quote, any system which grants unearned privileges to a particular class of individuals, end of quote. Whatever the precise causes, some segment of white soldiers returned home with a deepened or newfound determination to build a more just, post-war America. Um, new veterans organizations formed in part because, quote, artificial barriers against our fellow man are crumbling under the impact of war. Bullets do not distinguish between color, race, or creed, end of quote. Other white veterans organized brotherhood days, weeks, and months advocated for fair employment laws, spoke out against housing discrimination, and demanded a desegregated military and National Guard, right? So some folks of color, veterans of color, come back and want to make America a more just place. Some white veterans have the same response and are joining those struggles after the war. Thanks to sweeping wartime activism, the US military also became more egalitarian during the war. By war's end, in, in direct contrast to its beginning, the, no military service excluded any group on the basis of race. That was not the case at the very beginning of the war. The Marine Corps barred African Americans. The Navy only accepted African Americans in the most menial roles, um, and so forth. But by the end of the war, there was no branch that was had any blanket exclusions on the basis of race. Um, and the policy of segregation was well on its way out 
when it came to non-black minorities, and it was newly controversial in the case of African Americans. In fact, President Truman often receives the lion's share of credit for the post-war desegregation of the US military, but wartime activists in and out of uniform, especially African-American activists, deserve their fair share, in my view. Without this wartime bottom-up pressure from troops and from civilians, it's hard to imagine Truman uh, issuing his executive order or the military desegregating in any meaningful way in the 19, late 40s and early 1950s. So there's this, a part of this story that I think gets lost, and that's this kind of grassroots struggle for a more egalitarian military that happened during World War II. So these were really important advances, and we should celebrate them. But the negative consequences of wartime divisions are more numerous and more significant still. And so I'll conclude with these. And I'm going to mention five consequences that I think were especially devastating and, and so deeply unfortunate. So the first point, military racism produced unspeakable trauma, suffering, and humiliation, which haunted some veterans long after the end of the war if it did not kill them first distinguished historian, the late, great John Hope Franklin, recalled that, quote, his older brother, a college graduate and high school principal, was abused by his white, uneducated staff sergeant, consigned to the kitchen brigade, and driven to an early grave two years after the close of the war by the insensitive, barbaric treatment of those who draped themselves in the flag and sang the national anthem even as they destroyed the nation's ideals and its people, end of quote. Even many of those people who survived the twin traumas of war and racism still face serious challenges even decades later. Interviewed in the 1970s, one African-American veteran recalled, quote, there are thousands of black ex-GIs who will not talk about World War II because for the black man it was humiliating, degrading, and cruel, and not by accident. The treatment of black people was deliberate, contrived, and planned as well as the Normandy invasion. Only the invasion is over, but the wounds of the black man are still raw, end of quote. My wife's grandfather's war story, this is a really beautiful painting from, by a fellow soldier of a, a black soldier in 1945. This is at the Art Museum at Harvard now. My wife's grandfather's war story suggests that these lasting wounds were not black veterans alone. So this is Yasugo Kadomiya, born on Bainbridge Island in the state of Washington. He joined the army on his 26th birthday, January 13th, 1942. What his experiences were like in uniform are largely unknown, except that on August 7th, 1943, he and five other Japanese-American soldiers stationed in Wyoming at Fort Francis E. Warren, they wrote a, a letter to the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. Why? Because they wished to renounce their U.S. citizenship and expatriate to Japan, end of quote, or not end of quote, end of sentence. 
When the army investigated the men's requests, Kadomia explained that, quote, on several occasions in the US Army, I have been referred by officers as a goddamn Jap. An officer once told me that it is a disgrace to the United States to permit a Jap to wear a uniform, end of quote. No doubt the other restrictions placed on Japanese Americans during the war, their mandatory movement inland, their constant surveillance, their loss of arms, no doubt these other restrictions infuriated this willful, proud, and principled young man. In any case, the army rejected his request, punishing him instead. It transferred him to a hard labor battalion for what they called the potentially subversive it forced him to conduct menial tasks for the rest of the war, and it eventually discharged him less than honorably, which restricted his access to invaluable GI Bill benefits at precisely the time that he was starting a family after the war. When he died of alcoholism at the age of 58, he had not been well for years. His embittering, if not downright traumatizing, army experiences had to have played at least some role. So that's the first point, this kind of lasting wounds that some of this injustice caused. Second point, the military's racist lines unquestionably interfered with its efficient execution of the war, perhaps lengthening, lengthening America's time in the conflict and costing American lives. For example, the military's restrictions against African American and Japanese American enlistment. So, there were, I have a whole chapter on how the, the army in particular um, kind of systematically restricted the access of African Americans to the point where they were supposed to be proportionally represented in the army, um, which would have been about 1.6 million. There were 1.1 million African Americans in the army, um, a huge number. So they were very important to the war effort and should be honored for that for sure. But there would have been many, many more African Americans in the military had there not been this kind of systematic effort to keep their numbers down. So that's what I mean by these kind of enlistment restrictions against African Americans. There were some restrictions against Japanese Americans as well, but they weren't as, as uh, widespread or as, um, yes, they were not as widespread. In any case, the bottom line is um, the military's restrictions against African Americans, especially in Japanese Americans to some extent, their enlistment, or their restrictions against their and other non-whites' promotions and commissions robbed the military of more than a half a million additional troops and untold numbers of people who, had they been given the chance, would have excelled as, say, pilots or paratroopers or generals. But those were all positions that were completely off limits to folks of color and especially African Americans. So one has to wonder kind of how would this have impacted the war had the military taken full advantage of all of its people. Um, moreover, while military leadership often claimed that color lines minimized inefficiencies and strife, they often maximized both. Why? In the form, or how was this the case? In the form of the added administrative work required to run multiple militaries, not just one, but a black military and a white military. Um, uh, in the form of the overuse and underuse of facilities, equipment, and people as a consequence of these multiple militaries. In the form of countless disturbances and protests to dissolve or deepen 
military racism, and in the form of lowered morale among many of those troops ensnared, enraged, and demoralized by that racism. Point three, military racism deepened many whites' investment in white supremacy, especially its anti-black variant. For every white veteran who returned home with a burning desire to democratize America, and as I said, there were definitely those white veterans for sure, there was another white veteran, likely several, every bit as determined to protect white supremacy at all cost, especially uh, racism that targeted African Americans in particular. The most extensive army survey of soldiers and veterans' views found that while some whites, quote, felt that tolerance had been promoted by interracial contact in the army, a larger group seemed to have reinforced their prejudiced pre-army attitudes, end of quote. One representative veteran, recalling his time in the service, remarked that relations with African-American GIs were fine, quote, as long as they stayed in their place, we didn't associate with each other, they kept on the other side of the line, end of quote. Right, so this military racism, not only did it humiliate people and wound people and in certain cases kill people, it also um, you know, was a huge interference in the efficient execution of the war. Um, and it also, I think, you know, uh, you know, reproduced certain kinds of racism. The military, this really important institution in American life, is essentially you know, underwriting this racism and saying this is, this is perfectly acceptable. Fourth point, that this black-white line or these color lines, or I'm sorry, that the black-white line was actually plural, not singular, that the military imposed not one color line, but a bewildering mix of them may have poisoned or further poisoned America's post-war politics for years to come. So this is a War Department intelligence report from 1942. And it remarks, quote, in India, the British have instituted as many as five or six grades of Jim Crow, the reason for this being that the British found that the more classes there are, the easier it is to exploit the masses. This is a War Department intelligence report talking about wartime India in 1942. In other words, divide and conquer. Something similar happened in America's World War II armed forces, though, without the clear-cut intentionality. The military's many, quote, grades of Jim Crow and many racialized classes greatly complicated Americans' efforts to transcend color lines and to work together in the post-war years. This point is especially noteworthy given the numerous promising efforts during the war to do just this, to actually cooperate across color lines, coalescing around an expansive set of identities like workers or, quote, darker races or the people. There was a diverse mix of unionists and feminists and civil rights activists who organized from Hawaii to Memphis, Los Angeles to New York, Winston-Salem to Detroit. They came together to fight fascism and imperialism, to advance civil rights and workers' rights, and to mobilize for social democratic parties and candidates, and to imagine a world anew. But such expansive solidarity and cooperation um, appeared only intermittently in the military, and it often foundered in post-war civilian circles for numerous reasons. But in my view, one important 
reason is too often overlooked, and that is the deep and convoluted color lines embedded in the day-to-day -day military lives of young, 16 million young, impressionable American service members and the enduring fractures those lines produced, right? So this is an incredibly uh, formative moment for 16 million young people in the United States. And that formative moment, um, you know, baked into that formative moment was racial, were racial divisions. And so you can imagine the kind of impact this had on Americans' post-war abilities to kind of look beyond race when their experience in the military convinced them of the kind of pervasiveness of racism. Finally, final point, lost in this fracturing was a simple but a profound truth. And that is that military racism spared nobody. Military racism spared nobody. By my book, Divisions catalogs the manifold harms done to African Americans and Japanese Americans, and to a lesser extent, other people of color. These harms endured in the form of skills not learned, promotions not won, wages not earned, wealth not accumulated, experiences not gained, GI Bill benefits not received, um, uh, psychological traumas not resolved, right? So there are all kinds of really profound costs. But even white people, by far the biggest beneficiaries of military racism, also paid a price. And sometimes it was the ultimate price. Racist barriers in enlistment, and elsewhere ensured whites overrepresentation among those who served, fought on the front lines, and died. Viewed this way, military racism crowned few true victors. So it has been with all forms of racism, past and present. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, I wanted your thoughts on racial discrimination and military justice. Can we look at it in more holistic and meaningful way? Do we not have enough demographic information, for example, to look at it? And we have everything from court martials to military jails to even um, extrajudicial punishment for, let's say, stepping out of line. Yeah, thank you. So I've got about five or six pages in, um, in this book on military justice overseas in particular, and I've got a few pages on military justice um, on the whole, uh, uh, in the United States. And the bottom line is there was extensive racism here. Um, and so, and, and the, the, the best kind of most detailed data I have, have on this is um, a large document on military justice in the European theater of operations. The data is not as great, or the data are not as great in other theaters. But in the European theater, the essential thing is that African Americans are greatly overrepresented among those who are charged, are tried, charged, 
um, sentenced, executed. I mean, all along, as I say in the book, you know, with every fateful step to the gallows, African Americans are greatly overrepresented. Um, part of it had to do with a military justice system that greatly um, favored folks in power, um, which disadvantaged people of all colors. Um, but because there was so much racism, because African Americans were so underrepresented among the officers who are making a lot of these decisions, their prejudices really played a role in, in, in producing these immense disparities. Um, so absolutely, this is kind of one among so many different places that you see really graphic forms, really dramatic, disturbing forms of discrimination. And yeah, a lot more, de more details in the book, but that's a great question, thank you. Chuck Allen, Army War College faculty. Can you talk to the impact of the World War I experience in shaping the policies of World War II, please? Sure, yeah, so, so many of the senior most leaders in the War Department in particular uh, served during World War I, and those were formative experiences for them. And coming out of the war, there were certain uh, reports written about the performance of African Americans that were kind of riddled with all kinds of you know, racist prejudice and things. Um, and that deeply shaped the policies in the interwar years that were kind of entrenched by the time the war broke out, but it also deeply shaped the kind of experiences of, as I said, this kind of senior most officers and civilian, in some cases, civilian leaders of uh, the Navy Department and the War Department during the war. Um, so World War I was really, really important in all of this, for sure. You absolutely see, you know, Stimson, for example, you know, Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, in his memoirs, um, which are at Yale University, you see him constantly reflecting on, well, you know, should African Americans and whites serve? Well, no, we can't possibly do this. African Americans aren't ready for that. They're not ready to be officers. And they have all of these, he has all of these kind of preconceived notions about African American incapacity and the impossibility of of integration that are often rooted in a, a kind of a, a, what I would say is a deep misunderstanding of what happened during World War I. So you see constant references to, the, to World War I in policy discussions during World War II. All right, so we have one uh, coming in from the internet. Um, in your research, did you see any examples of influence from allied countries to change or pay attention to racial integration in the United States Army? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I can think of examples of, you know, foreign countries supporting our racist policies, actually. So I remember a, doc, um, a document in the National Archives that I found that said that um, a U.S. Army base, I'm forgetting the name, on the U.S.-Mexico border, they, they um, were instituting certain forms of segregation in part because this was more or less the practice of the U.S. Army throughout the war, as I've said, but also because they wanted to appeal to the Mexican government that had concerns about integration kind of spilling over the border and causing trouble in Mexico. China, lots of foreign governments um, uh, made appeals to the War Department saying, we don't want African-American troops in our, in, our, in our country, so please keep them out. So the kinds of racism that I'm talking about in the US military was global. 
It was not just particular to the United States. These were ideas that were rooted in centuries of colonialism and slavery that um, you, know, you see reflected not just in the United States, but in other places as well. At the same time, that's at the kind of government level. But as I said, at the personal level, African Americans were often you know, um, so moved by the kind of friendships that they forged with people all around the world who were not as deeply rooted in a kind of American racist set of practices, right? They had less experience with African Americans. They did not have, they had their own forms of racism, but it wasn't as institutionalized as it was in the US. And so they were often far more willing to, to, to treat African Americans like like human beings and to treat them with, with respect. And, and again, that was a really inspiring experience for many, many African Americans in France, in the UK, in Ireland, in Italy, um, in Germany, in, 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 in Germany after the war, in uh, Australia and other parts of the world. So whereas you see a lot of instances of racism, not a lot, some instances of racism among foreign governments, you, you see and there was, of course, racism on the ground in a lot of these countries as well. African Americans' experiences in these places um, were very complex, and I try to get into those details. But again, one of the things that really uh, made an impression on many African American troops was just how friendly foreigners could be and how respectful they could be. Did you find in your research any difference in leadership toward racism at, say, the division or corps or army level from one to the other? Yeah, that's a good question. So overseas is where you really start to see the kind of middle manager, that kind of um, commander level has a little more discretion about, about race policies. Um, and so you see a little bit more experimentation overseas in certain divisions more so than others, in certain places more so than others. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to think of a kind of a specific example of how this worked. I mean, the most obvious example is that after the Battle of the Bulge, the US Army desperately needs uh, more combat troops. And so they, they create this kind of fairly well-known experiment and they integrate certain uh, companies. Um, and you know, there's kind of, again, the, the assumption among almost every military leader during the war, especially in the army, is that integration is just not possible, that whites are just not going to go for it. But they have this experiment, and they have extensive surveying of these units after the war. And what they find is that all of their assumptions were completely wrong. That in fact, in the heat of battle, people aren't so concerned about race, as it turns out. And white people, even folks who you know, grew up in the most kind of segregationist places, were not as invested in this stuff as the military assumed. Um, you know, this study um, you know, so contradicted the prevailing common sense in the War Department that it was buried for, um, for some time um, after it was, it was released internally. Um, but in any case, this is just an example. This is actually not so much an example of folks at the commander level um, experimenting, because this was something that the highest 
um, you know, Eisenhower had to sign off on this in the European theater. But nonetheless, there are moments where you see a little bit of experimentation here and there um, in the field, where especially when you know fighting is happening and people are having to kind of improvise a little bit. All right, folks, we have time for two more questions. Having heard all of this, I keep thinking about that gift of the Statue of Liberty from the French. And how was that accepted when it was given? So, I, could you say that again? I'm not Give sure. Give me your tired, your poor. Oh, your, I see. Oh, yes, the, the poem at the end, Emma Lazarus's poem. Oh, we memorized that in high school. Sure. I was born in 1944. <laughs> right. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, breathing, yearning to breathe free. Right. So, you know. Uh, yeah, well, clearly there's an enormous gap between military policy during the war and the stated ideals. It was. But what, how is the French related to the story? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. All right. I think we have another question back there in the in the back. There were some of the units that that were uh, uh, you know completely black that distinguished themselves. I mean the uh, red tails come to mind, sure. and then with the Japanese the four 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 two, and there was a separate tank battalion. I think it was the three sixtieth, but I, that's not it. That also distinguished yeah. itself. Did they have any impact on these ideas that they were not, that the um, African Americans were not capable of uh, fighting or, which I think is basically the, the, the crux of the whole thing, were they capable of fighting and holding their own? Right. And these guys certainly did. Yeah, that's a great point, thank you. And I, I just wanna um, um, plug one book by Matt Delmont called Half American, which is, you know, my focus is really on kind of the way race operates in the military and, and the resistance against that racism. But Matt's book is really a, a powerful testament to the importance of African Americans to the war effort, and that's his focus. So our books are kind of complementary in certain respects, but his focus really is on the, the central importance of African Americans to the war effort. And in that book, he talks about some of these storied African American units that, in fact, again, contradicted the kind of prevailing wisdom um, of so much military leadership that African Americans were incapable of fighting. Um, right, the Red Tails, the Tuskegee Airmen, the, the 761st, there are a number of units, but you know, but the, the bottom line, and, and, and yes, and of course the 442nd and the 100th Infantry Battalion. What I found is that, you know, military leaders seemed much more willing to change their feelings about Japanese Americans than, for Afri than, than they were about African Americans. So, um, you know, again, the kind of the, 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 the um, you know, the most kind of powerful assumption about Japanese Americans was that they were, as I said, incapable of being loyal. Um, you know, when, when Japanese Americans disproved that idea over and over again, the military kind of you know, kind of took notice, you know? And by the end of the war, you start hearing them sing a different tune. There's still racism against Japanese Americans, 
institutionalized racism in the military at the very end of the war, so it's not as if it completely disappeared, but you see people changing their minds. Anti-black racism was of a completely different order. It was just so much more deeply entrenched that even the most heroic efforts on the part of African Americans, in some cases, just were, was not able to dislodge these kind of deeply held beliefs. Um, among certain people, it absolutely was, but, but not enough to make a kind of, a, I think, a, a meaningful difference um, by the end of the war. But that's a great question. Thank you. Yes, you. Um discuss the impact uh, a little bit on the overall mental health. I want to talk, mm. ask you about mental health sure. and its impact. Uh, if you had a chance to look at the data as it reflected uh, minorities in World War II, tell me about their mental health, uh, what you saw in terms of that in comparison with their white counterparts. Yeah, thank you. So I have looked at some of the wartime studies of this, and you know, it, it, so so many of these sources, you have to be really. I'm, I'm, you know, so much of this book is rooted in years and years of archival research, often in military records, you know, and so all of these kind of prevailing ideas, many racist ideas, you know, these are the the ideas that I'm I'm kind of constantly encountering in these memos, you know, and so you have to kind of read them, but you have to kind of read them critically, understanding the time, understanding the purposes of some of these documents, you know? And that is especially important when it came to mental health. So you read some of these studies, and some of them, so to answer your question, there is evidence that you know, African Americans and other folks of color were disproportionately represented among people with mental health issues during the war. Um, and you know that's not shocking at all, given that they're dealing not just with the traumas of war, but they're having to deal with the traumas of expansive racism as well. So again, it makes perfect sense that you'd find you'd have these findings. At the same time, it's true that you know if you read these studies, they're also kind of trafficking in certain racial prejudices, saying things like, "Well, African Americans are kind of constitutionally weaker" and things like that. So you can kind of read some of this, but you have to kind of um, recognize some of the limitations in some of these sources and some of the data. All right, we do have uh, enough time for two more questions. I've got uh, Professor Allen and Luis Arnold Friend. We'll do those two, and then we're going to, uh, to move on to the thank yous. Thank you. I know historians don't predict the future. They look to the past to explain what happened. What are the implications now of your book and your studies on the Army of today and military of today? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I, yeah, I'm not, a, I spent years studying the World War II military and not, not as many years studying the contemporary military. And so I'm not really honestly in a great position to give anybody great advice. But I guess one, one thing that I, um, one lesson that I take from this story is just the importance of enlisted folks of color who kind of understood you know, because they were living these injustices day in and day out. They understood just how wrong all this was. It was not coming from the top, you know. It was often coming from, you know, the, the grassroots in a lot of respects. Now, keep in mind, this was also at a time when there were, with the exception of 
uh, Benjamin O. Davis Sr., right, you had no African Americans at the senior most levels of, say, the War Department. And so when it came to policy, this was an entirely white enterprise. And that obviously had enormous limitations in terms of their ability to understand what African Americans were going for. Davis himself, who was pretty moderate, you know, he at one point said, listen, we need a War Department wide committee on these issues, they're that important, and we absolutely have to have significant black representation because white folks are incapable of understanding what African Americans are going through in this war. Um, and, and you see that reflected in the policy. Um, so the military has actually changed quite a bit, it seems, um, from these years, obviously. But at the same time, my understanding is there's still kind of disproportionate numbers of white folks at the senior most levels. I think there was a, a kind of an infamous photo of, of President Trump with the, the, um, you know, the highest ranking officers of all the, the services, and it was almost entirely white folks. Now, I know that's, that has changed a little bit over the last few years, but nonetheless, you, know, at, you need diversity for sure. That's a lesson. You, you cannot, you, you need diversity in order to understand the diverse experiences of service members. That kind of goes without saying. The, the blinding whiteness of leadership in, the, in World War II was an enormous problem for the military, no doubt. But also, just returning to my original point, um, there's, there was a lot of wisdom coming up from, the, from below, from the enlisted ranks. These folks were the ones that were kind of experiencing some of the most, um, uh, uh, the kind of most devastating forms of injustice. And they, in certain cases, had the courage to kind of raise their voices, even though they, in many cases, were you know, severely punished for it, they nonetheless had the courage to say, listen, this is at odds with what we are fighting for. This should not be policy and practice of the US military. We should do better. We can do better. That kind of stuff, it, ha it came from officers as well. And I, I mentioned some really great stories of black officers who spearheaded protests, you know? So the Tuskegee Airmen, for example, um, in, oh gosh, what is the name of that uh, place? Fort Freeman in, in Indiana, um, you know, face all kinds of segregation at a, at a base there and, 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 and have certain, have engaged in some civil disobedience to fight against it. So I don't mean to suggest that there weren't certain officers that were also really important in this battle to make the military live up to the wartime ideals of the nation. But it seems most often that it was really coming from the enlisted ranks. So that's just another lesson. Thank you. Was, did, did your research uncover any instances of media, the press at that point, whatever media happened to be, was picking up on any of the within the ranks situations like all the Bamber bridges in Britain right. and so forth that, or did the War Department manage to control what went public during the war years? Yeah. That would have had a racial component. Yeah, thank you. 
great question. So in terms of overseas, they couldn't control, so you mentioned Bamberger, but you know, there were riots all over the world when it came to kind of the racism and, and its effects. I mean, you had black and white service members fighting in certain cases in massive, um, you know, uh, thousand person riots and things, um, often stemming from white service members' attempts to kind of police racial boundaries. Um, so, you know, in these sorts of instances, the foreign press is picking up on these stories, and obviously the War Department couldn't do too much about that. Um, in the United States, the most important source were African-American newspapers. So this was the war years, where, that was the heyday of African-American newspapers, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Chicago Defender, uh, the New York Amsterdam News. Um, there were dozens of these newspapers. And, um, and you know, the War Department attempted to have a relationship with them and to kind of, um, shape coverage to some extent, and there was some criticism of the press that they weren't tough enough, but they covered a lot of this stuff, and I drew on these sources um, 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 for really important information, um, uh, you know, information about what was going on. It was not always perfect. They were often deeply invested in trying to tell the most positive story about African-American soldiers, um, but nonetheless, it's a vital source for understanding some of these issues. All right, folks, uh, I'll ask uh, Mr. Greg Statler to come on up Excuse me. and uh, say a few words of thanks uh, for our speaker tonight. All right, how about a round of applause for our speaker? <laughs> All right, sir, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the War College in AHAC for bringing this uh, conversation to us. It was fantastic. Uh, on behalf of the uh, folks here at the AHEC, I'd like to present you with an AHEC coin. Thank you very much. For, uh, for all of your efforts, and again, uh, fantastic conversation tonight. Thanks, Thank sir. you, appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.